Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, the 8th Annual Martin Luther King Jr. Convocation, A View from the Mountaintop, Reflections on Social Justice in Today's World, looks at the modern progress of social justice through the lens of Martin Luther King's last speech and contrasted to the public perception of MLK's impact on social progress. This year's event featured Nakima Levy Armstrong, a civil rights attorney, activist, national expert on racial justice, former law professor and legal scholar. Assistant Dean of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, Rashaya G facilitated the conversation. Dean Gary W. Jenkins shared opening remarks and an overview of our Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. annual series. This event was recorded on January 19th, 2023. A video replay of the lecture is available on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Good afternoon. In his final speech, Reverend Dr. King observed, I've been to the mountaintop, I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. Today, 55 years later, we ask, what progress have we made toward that promised land? And how might our conceptions of what it looks like changed? Welcome to our eighth annual MLK Convocation. I think most of you know me, but I'm Gary Jenkins, Dean of the Law School. Uh, here at Minnesota Law, we take this opportunity each year to convene our community, students, faculty, staff, friends, to reflect on the work of Dr. King and connect the challenges of today to his transformational work. I wanna thank all of you for joining us today uh, to reflect on that legacy. And thank you, of course, to Assistant Dean of DEI, uh, Rashaya G, and the Racial Equity and Justice Committee for sponsoring this great event. Now, we usually start this event, for those of you who are new, um, with a quote or passage from Dr. King. As you heard this year, we're talking about progress. We're talking also about setbacks and how we deal with hope and with vision, sometimes achieved, sometimes not. As members of the legal profession and students preparing to join it, we know that a central responsibility of the profession and the role of the rule of law is the pursuit of justice. And in this way, lawyers are uniquely positioned and privileged uh, to impact our world. And we're also keenly aware of the importance of learning from history and reflecting back on our shared past. 
as well as, I hope, continuing to listen to and learn from people and communities most impacted by injustice and structural barriers. With a concept like justice, we're always grasping for it, right? Over the arc of history, there are huge gains, and at the same time, what can feel like inadequate progress. And as a result, we know that in a moment, that maintaining optimism can sometimes be challenging, right? Setbacks happen. Forward progress can be difficult to achieve. And as I've said many times with respect to DEI work, this work is both urgent, right? We can't wait, and it's long-term. It's movement work, so it's engaged in systemic change, which by definition takes time. And that tension, I think, is both real and difficult. So how do we ma maintain resilience despite frustrations? How do we define progress in the face of so many challenges? So today, uh, we gather to reflect on the aspirations of really the civil rights movement and Dr. King's work and to think critically about the movement today. We're going to lean into uh, resiliency and perhaps better understand what it means to dismantle barriers of justice, continue to take action to lead, and to make an impact in the profession and in our communities. And we're honored to have two expert speakers to help inspire and guide us in that discussion. I am pleased to welcome Nikimi Levy Armstrong, a Minneapolis-based civil rights attorney, activist, a former law professor, and a prominent community leader. She is the executive director of the Wayfinder Foundation and previously served as president of the Minneapolis NAACP. As a professor of law at the University of St. Thomas Law School, she co-founded, she founded the Community Justice Project, which was an award-winning civil rights legal clinic. And she received her JD from the University of Illinois and her BA from the University of Southern California, soon to be part of the Big Ten, which is just weird. But <laughs> we won't get into that. Um, uh, uh, we're thrilled to have with us today. Thank you, Nikima. Um, she's going to address a topic uh, we're calling A View from the Mountaintop, Reflections on Social Justice in Today's World, and do that in conversation with our Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Rashaya G, Class of 13. Now, some of you already know Dean G. Others haven't had a chance uh, to meet her yet since she just returned to Minnesota law this fall uh, to join us in this role. Uh, but she is no stranger to the law school, having graduated uh, in 2013. Uh, she practiced criminal defense and family law in Ohio and also worked as a DEI consultant and commentator where she facilitated cross-racial coaching. Uh, she helped organizations center racial equity and operationalize uh, anti-racist frameworks and provided commentary to news outlets and taught at several law schools, including our own. 
So thank you, uh, Dean G. Uh, before we begin, a few housekeeping notes. I just want you all to be aware, particularly when we get to the Q&A uh, portion, uh, that we are recording the section. The session, uh, there, it isn't a live link, but it is being recorded. Um, so it will be uh, emailed to all of the registrants and ultimately posted on our website. So um, we will reserve time for Q&A. But right now, please join me in welcoming Nikima Levy Armstrong and Assistant Dean G. Hi, how are you, Rashaya? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. Um, I'm excited for our discussion today. Me too. Yeah, I think it's going to be good. So, so many folks know um, King today as this kind of widely beloved figure. Um, but what many don't realize is that during the course of his life, um, that image was not so widely accepted and embraced by a large subset of our population. If you notice behind us, there are some photos of Dr. King uh, on a loop. And, and one of the photos that uh, I, I, this sticks out to me is it's a political cartoon. And um, of course, now it's not going to come up because I'm talking about it. <laughs> but I promise if you keep watching, it's back there. And um, Dr. King isn't even the most important part of that image, in my opinion. If you look around Dr. King um, in the image, there's all kinds of chaos. There is on the ground next to them what appears to be um, a illustration of a, a deceased person right here. Um, cars are on fire, buildings are burning, cars are turned over. Um, and the caption at the very top uh, is supposed to be a quote Dr. King is giving what looks like a reporter in the image. And it says, I will have another nonviolent, nonviolent is in air quotes, um, march tomorrow, right? And it's essentially mocking um, or suggesting that that's a farce, right? That, these, that his efforts are not, in fact, nonviolent and that he's dangerous. I think the implications. Um, and a big reason that that was the sentiment was because his work, uh, I think now, is often uh, distorted as that one line from that speech. But his work, many people considered dangerous. His critiques, many people considered dangerous because they were so poignant, because they were so clear about the problems facing the country. Can you talk a little bit about that version of Dr. King? Thank you for that introduction and the pictures that we can all enjoy and see different sides of who Dr. King was, right? Not the, what some of us call the whitewash anemic version of Dr. King and what he stood for and who he really was. And I think that we're at a point in our society where we do have to deconstruct the truth of his words and not sell ourselves short by accepting a shadow of the truth. Because one of the things that he said in one of his speeches before he died, um, where do we go from here? You know, he talked a lot about um, the unfinished business. You know, he didn't necessarily use that particular language, but he, he said we have a long way to go. There are still so many issues that are impacting our society. He celebrated the wins, which I think are also important because when you're on the front lines and you're doing this work fighting for social change, a lot of times your, you know, your head is down and you're just continuing to persevere. Um, and that often does not give way 
to celebrating successes. But I do believe that even small successes are important to keep building momentum. So he wanted to encourage the people to let them know, you know, we have these things based on our organizing, based upon our persistence, based upon our resistance to oppression, uh, boycotting stores, uh, refusing to take the bus. All of these things have led to legislative changes that are going to change lives. But he also made it clear that that wasn't enough. And I think as a society, we have forgotten about that part of his message, that it, it wasn't enough. You know, it was crumbs compared to the types of sweeping changes that still need to happen in our society. And when I think about the reason that Dr. King was ultimately killed, um, he was assassinated on April 4th of 1968, and it was at a time in which he was planning to launch the Poor People's Campaign. And it took me years to even learn about that, right? Because that wasn't part of the narrative. You're going you gonna to answer a question I haven't asked yet. If you, if you talk about it too much, you got That's not, It's not that part in the program yet. But, but, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry. Oh, I, I don't want to interrupt you, though, so go ahead. So, <laughs> so when I get started, it's hard. I know, I apologize. But, um, but with regard to the Poor People's Campaign, you know, he talked about what needed to happen in our society, you know, and that we needed to universally focus on the poor of all racial groups. And we needed to be much more intentional and focused about the kinds of resources that would be put into play on behalf of the poorest of the poor, you know, like access to affordable housing, um, a guaranteed uh, minimum income that people would receive, universal health care, things that in the 2000s, we are literally still talking about, right? And not just in Southern states, right here in Minneapolis. So, um, so when I think about Dr. King's legacy and what he stood for and the sacrifices that he made, it, it just reminds me that we owe him a debt of gratitude and not just taking out a day to celebrate an anemic version of his life, but actually doing the work that he said was necessary to bring about a more equitable society. And I think that's where people are often stuck, mm -hmm. doing the actual work. Yeah, I think you're right. I think one of the biggest misappropriations of his legacy is that um, he is often utilized in ways that cause many of us to absorb the message um, at some point in our life that the heavy lifting of this work has already been done, right? That mm -hmm. uh, generations before us, including uh, King's generation and the work of the civil rights movement did the heavy lifting. And there may be tweaks that need to happen, um, you know, in the future, but the majority, the heavy lifting has already been done. And I think Dr. King himself didn't believe that and often uh, said explicitly in his work that the heavy lifting was yet to come. And I wonder if we, as a nation, as a society, were more conscientious of that part of him that you're talking about um, and were able to frame what has to happen as the heavy lifting, right? That the heavy lifting hasn't been done, that that was the introduction, the forward, and maybe the beginning of chapter one. But it's still up to us to, to, to write the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. The heavy lifting is on us, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder what that would mean for how we engage him and how we think about his legacy and how we think about his work if we thought about ourselves as being responsible for the heavy lifting. So 
we're talking about um, this kind of sanitized version of King that often characterizes his work, and by extension, the movement. Mm -hmm. um, and some people even try to use that version to admonish uh, uh, existing liberation struggles and existing mm -hmm. movement building. What do you think the relationship is between the movement of Dr. King's time and the movement of our time? That's definitely a loaded question, <laughs> but I'll do my best to unpack. Um, so when just that cartoon figure that you showed, yeah. it, it reminds me of media interviews, you know, that I've done and other right. people who've been on the front lines here, um, of you know, trying to push for an end to police violence and you know, more police accountability and things like that. And so when, you know, I would say ninety nine point ninety nine percent of protests and demonstrations that we're involved in have been nonviolent, right? Nonviolent, the level of restraint that people have, given the amount of rage that they probably should have, yeah. right, based upon the, the conditions, I think is, 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 it's amazing uh, that people can have that kind of restraint. But if there are demonstrations that happen where um, people maybe don't consider it to be peaceful or they're afraid, you know, that something's been unleashed and that, you know, they're, you know, going to be in harm's way or where buildings are burned and things like that. Unfortunately, there are people who will take those incidences and try to discredit an entire movement and try to invalidate the underlying concerns that people are bringing to the forefront that causes them to put their bodies on the line, their lives on the line, their livelihoods on the line to stand up for what they believe in. So I see a lot of parallels between the movement of the 50s and 60s um, and the organizing that happened, the persistence that happened, uh, people being arrested and blacklisted and all kinds of things that were happening during that time. Um, I compare that to what we've experienced out on the front lines over the last several years. Um, for those who may not know, um, I would say that our first March, marches here happened after Trayvon Martin was killed, right? And I'm not talking about the aspects of the movement for racial justice that was happening in the 60s here, because it was. You know, the, the lunch counters, you know, that many of us can just go to effortlessly. If you were black, you couldn't sit at those lunch counters right here in the Twin Cities. If we were black, you couldn't live in certain neighborhoods because of the redlining and the restrictions and the difficulty even of being able to get a loan, you know, to be able to buy a house. Um, a lot of things we take for granted were not things that, that black people could just freely enjoy during that period of time. And so I think about all of the oppression that they experienced, the danger that they were in, the disdain that they faced from the majority of Americans who did not think that the marching and the fighting and the organizing was even necessary because they were comfortable. They were complacent with regard to the status quo and they were indifferent to the suffering of poor black people as well as other people of color. And so when you look at the movement that has happened here, um, people were marching during that time, demonstrating, um, and then you know, it just kind of went underground you know, after Dr. King was killed and so, in the Twin Cities, I want to say it was 2012, 2013, when we marched after Trayvon Martin was killed. It wasn't a full-fledged movement, 
until after Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri. And some of us actually traveled to Ferguson and uh, participated in those demonstrations. You know, I was one of the folks who I showed up in November, right? Mike Brown was killed in August. So think about this, from August to November, I'm watching, just like everybody else, the events unfold in Ferguson, Missouri, right? I'm increasingly concerned. I'm just seeing the stress and the trauma, people being arrested, tear gas, all kinds of things. My legal brain, my academic brain wanted to write about these things, right, and call attention to these things. And then one night it got to the point where this was um, the period of time in which they were going to announce the decision by the grand jury of whether to um, actually, you know, charge the officer who killed Mike Brown. This was in November, right before Thanksgiving, um, and at night that they made this announcement. And I remember watching, you know, on my computer screen and seeing an incident that happened that was life-changing for me. Um, you know, I'm a mom, right? I have four children. Um, at the time, I had three children. And I'm watching um, a situation in which there were protesters and children inside of a safe house in Ferguson. And the police knew that that was a safe house, but they threw tear gas inside of that safe house. So as I'm watching this raid of a safe house, I'm seeing children screaming because they're being tear gas, parents trying to pour milk, you know, or milk of magnesia in their eyes, stop the burning. And as a mom, I started to weep. It impacted me where I couldn't just be academic and legal and distant. In my analysis and understanding of what happened, it made me want to go to Ferguson. And I talked to my children about it, and they encouraged me. You know, my, my 10-year-old, you know, said, Mom, God said this is part of your journey. And so the next day, I hopped on a flight, went to Ferguson. The only address I had was um, the National Lawyers Guild office in Ferguson. So I showed up there along with other lawyers and law students from around the country um, to become legal observers. And our first night, you know, I was tear gassed. And I wanted to run back to my normal life. I'm like, wait, I did not sign up for this, right? I have on this lime green hat. I'm a legal observer, right? I'm supposed to be protected. That couldn't have been further from the truth. I was out there with the protesters trying to monitor and document. But at that point, it was a either you're with us or against us type mentality from those in positions of power. And so they considered even legal observers to be a part of the threat of those who were protesting. And so I wound up sticking it out, you know, throughout that week. And then um, coming back to the Twin Cities, you know, being approached by young people saying they were going to start, you know, a BLM chapter, would I work with them? And I'm thinking, I'm a lawyer. I, <laughs> I'm a law professor. I don't know how I can help. But I showed up, you know, at the first meeting, and they decided we're going to shut down I-35 in solidarity with the folks in Ferguson, uh, the folks, you know, who are in Ohio, you know, because there have been a couple different killings, Eric Garner in New York, and people in the Twin Cities, whose names most people didn't know who had been killed. And so we shut down I-35. Um, a few weeks later, shut down the Mall of America. Um, and the rest is literally history, right? I'm skipping over some things that happened, but the point is that I, I had an admiration for Dr. King, Rosa Parks, 
and all the people who were the heroes during that period of time. But my admiration went to a whole other level, being in the midst of things that were reminiscent of what they experienced. So when we're reading about them saying we had to deal with vicious police dogs, we had to deal with um, you know, water hoses, tear gas, being arrested, a lot of us can read these things and we can have a sense of either indifference or we're just kind of taking it in like we're reading a novel, as opposed to trying to imagine what that would actually be like, having to put yourself literally into the line of fire, not knowing if you're going to make it out alive, simply to get people to recognize your basic humanity. That's what they did. And after being out there and seeing it and understanding it to the degree that I could, it just, it, it took my admiration to a whole other level. And now I can't read what he's saying or hear his speeches without being reminded of what has happened in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, that parallels those issues. Absolutely. And it's, it's so interesting you brought up shutting down the freeway because there was actually um, a commentator at some point that said something like, Dr. King would never... Dr. King would never, he would have never shut down a freeway. And it's always like, what do you think the Edmund Pettus Bridge was, exactly. right? When they're marching on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, it is very much them taking over a freeway. Yes. And so I think two things, you're exactly right, right? The sanitized version is then weaponized and used in ways to say this is the correct way, um, even though that's not actually even what happened. All of the things, I mean, I read a statistic that said that there was actually more property damage during the civil rights movement than there has been so far in BLM. Um, Dr. King did do a lot of these tactics. He, he publicly uh, encouraged right, ag agitation. He thought that confrontation was necessary. The confrontation didn't need to be violent, but it needed to be a confrontation mm -hmm. nonetheless. And one of the things that's also happened with this kind of sanitized version that you're talking about is these people seem so removed, right? They don't seem like ordinary people. They seem like superheroes or mm -hmm. something because they're doing all of these things and nothing bad is happening and they're never taking down freeways and nothing's burned down and everyone's fine with it and everyone loves him this entire time, none of which is true, right? If we talked about and were more aware of the fact that he did take down freeways and he did encourage folks to uh, uh, instigate confrontation and he... Uh, was not widely loved. Uh, and this is often even by uh, folks within the black community. There was kind of this parallel movement happening right within the courts uh, with Thurgood and the NAACP. Um, and there were many people, including black people, who believed that that was the appropriate way, mm -hmm. that that was the only thing that should be happening, that the things that were taking place in the street were unnecessary and were in fact more harmful to the cause um, then they were good. It wasn't until years, um, more than a decade after his life, that he transformed into uh, the An angel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> into the version of King uh, that we know now. In fact, one of the pictures circulating talks about Strom Thurmond uh, encouraging the FBI to open this investigation into him uh, because he's being controlled by communists. Does anyone know when Strom Thurmond uh, left the Senate? It was 2003, right? Um, he, he continued to be elected. He continued to serve in the U.S. Senate until 2003. Um, and in fact, was one of the uh, uh, key voices in opposing uh, Dr. King's holiday. <laughs> Dr. King's holiday didn't even become a holiday into the 80s because there was so much concern about him as a controversial figure. And so if we're able to think about him in that way, we're able to see a lot of the parallels you're talking about mm -hmm. with the movement today. 
So um, to kind of shift gears and get back to you were talking about his, his uh, vision um, and his, his shift towards his focus on the Poor People's Campaign. Um, in his book, uh, Where Do We Go From Here, he in fact um, does call the many of the gains that they've secure the vote, uh, some mild form of school integration um, and access to public accommodations. He, he calls that phase one, right? And he says the next phase is going to be even more difficult, require even more effort. He's on record saying, you know, it's easy to uh, oppose a bull Connor, right? It's easy to oppose Sheriff Clark. It's easy to oppose the Klan and the brutality that folks encountered in the South, right? It's easy to galvanize lights, lots of white moderates against the brutality uh, in the South, right? Most people are opposed to brutality, but being opposed to brutality is not the same as being in favor of equality. Mm -hmm. And once you get past the brutality, it's very difficult to get folks on board to oppose some of those more structural equity and equality issues. And he says, that's where our efforts have to go now. That's, he says, you know, um, he's always being asked about how he feels about the black power movement. Towards the end of his life, the black power movement is emerging and is a staunch uh, and stark contrast in a lot of ways to the nonviolent movement. And so King's constantly being asked, what do you think about the black power movement? What should we do about it? How are you gonna wrangle these young people and get them under control and get them to fall in line? And King is consistently saying that movement is not the cause of white angst, it's not the cause of the issues, it's a response. It is the consequence of the issues that we have yet to tackle. Um, and so he talks about needing to shift his efforts towards uh, new frontiers, a wider, uh, a broader uh, effort to, of, of equality. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what he envisioned being the next step and what he thought we needed to do as a society to move forward? Sure. I think that um, when you look at what Dr. King was focused on in the latter years of his life, he was very clear on the culture, you know, American culture, and the impacts of that culture on our liberation, right? He talked about the triple giants of racism, militarism, and extreme materialism. And that was in the 50s and 60s. If we look today, <laughs> what do we see? Right, many of the same issues that um, he felt were ills, you know, that um, persisted in our society that we're still grappling with today. But it's almost like we're frozen in time in terms of having that conversation. And part of what makes us frozen in time is the fact that we, we think, hey, the work is done. He happened to die or be killed as a result, but they accomplished enough. <laughs> Let's, let's keep moving. That's why we don't have real conversations about the need for reparations for um, American descendants of those who were enslaved. It's not even in Americans' uh, consciousness, right, that this is a real thing that needs to be talked about, that needs to be acted upon, and that can be connected to a lot of what we see happening in our most disenfranchised and distressed communities. We will look at the communities and the conditions and how people respond to those conditions, and then we place the blame on them, their families, their culture, their mindset, but we don't look at what undergirds the entire infrastructure 
that makes it so that there are quote unquote ghettos, you know, here in the United States, that makes it so that depending on your zip code, that's gonna have an impact on your destiny nine times out of 10 with regard to the quality of education you receive and what kinds of um, opportunities that you might uh, have access to as a result of where you live, right? We don't pay attention to any of those things. We're just comfortable knowing one day a year we're gonna go to a breakfast or do a service project and lift up Dr. King, who at the time of his assassination was one of the, if not the most hated man in America. Right. You would never know that from the way that we talk about him today and admire him today. Um, but a lot of that is a way um, of deflecting, right, from the deeper work that needs to happen. And even within law school environments, imagine if you, when you're in class, a lot of the conversations around laws and policies in the Constitution interwove this history in a very real and authentic way. And with a message that's almost like a call to action of how you're going to use your law degrees and this access to a high quality of education, your networks, your resources, your time and your talent to help address some of these issues that we're still facing within society. And I think part of why we haven't gotten to that mountaintop that Dr. King got to said, you know, we're gonna get there. Part of why we haven't gotten there is, excuse me, our resistance to peeling back the layers and again, rolling up our sleeves and doing the heavy lifting. Um, I was, so my youngest child is five years old. She's in kindergarten. And as we got closer to the Dr. King holiday, um, we were having conversations about Dr. King. And she was, I thought she knew and understood, you know, who Dr. King was just based on the documentaries and just the things. She's been out on the front lines with me on many occasions. But I asked her, she had a picture that she had colored of Dr. King. And I said, who was Dr. King? And she said, well, she's like, he got killed. And I'm like, I was shocked that that was the first thing that she said. She said, he got killed. And I said, well, why did he get killed? She said, because he refused to stop. And I, and I said, well, what, what did he refuse to stop doing? Marching. And so he got killed. That is what my five-year-old has learned in school about Dr. King. Right, so of course, as a mom, I'm going to have to re-educate and reinforce and reinstill, you know, the truth, um, and help my daughter understand, you know, who he really was and our responsibility to carry forward that legacy. But if she is learning this, imagine what students around the nation are learning. And then, if we think back to what we all learned, very similar messaging. Maybe it seemed a little more eloquent if you were in third grade versus kindergarten, but the core of it was essentially the same. The message is not given with this mandate to pick up the torch, pick up the mantle, do your part, help address structural and systemic issues, see poor people as human beings deserving of the same opportunities that mainstream America has access to, to understand when we're looking at laws and policies that they are grounded with this history in mind. The history of segregation, degradation, um, and the inhumane treatment of black people throughout many, many generations. 
if we understand that when we're looking at the laws and the policies and connecting that to our responsibility, then I think we would begin to see a change happen. But so often, these issues are segregated to if you focus on civil rights law, even though these are issues that affect everyone in American society from one generation to the next. So we need a paradigm shift in terms of the education, in terms of what happens in law school settings, and in terms of us understanding that we have a mandate to do this work, to have a more equitable society for all. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and it's so interesting, you know, one of the things I think that uh, many folks don't realize is that a lot of the um, analysis and identifying of the problems has already been done. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. King's last book, I have it here. Um, no, you cannot borrow it. My books are right below my children. I do not <laughs> loan them out. I take them very serious. I no lie, while I was on maternity leave, I would occasionally come back to like, are all my books here? Like that is my concern. <laughs> you can take my laptop. Please don't take my books. Um, so in his last book uh, of his life, which is, which is Where Do We Go From Here, Community or Chaos, he, you know, the first part of the book is called Where Are We? Right. And he goes through this very detailed explanation of, you know, here's what we've done. Here's why it's not enough. Here's what else needs to happen. Here's how that's going to move us forward. And I love the foreword by um, his wife. Um, Coretta does this foreword. I'm calling her Coretta like I know her, <laughs> like a person, a grown first name basis. Um, she does this foreword where she says, you know, my husband did all of this. And then a year later, uh, the Kerner Commission comes out. And if you haven't read the Kerner Commission, I absolutely emphatically uh, suggest you do. It's online for free. It's 400 pages, so just be, you know, in, in, be prepared for a long read. But uh, she says they came out a year later with a full staff and spent almost a million dollars to say the exact same thing, right, to say the exact same thing. And so there's been this really extensive charting, if you will, of where the problems are of what solutions are available and why those solutions would be most amenable, it's just really, really unfortunate that as a society, I think as you just said, we've just largely abandoned that part of it. We've said, no, thank you. We are not actually interested and invested in progress beyond this point. This progress gives the appearance of meaningful progress. And King says that in the book. He says, the signing of the legislation is itself enough to constitute reform, right? Even though that the fervor that got the legislation signed does, isn't sustained uh, post-signing. Um, and so I think there are all of these um, impediments um, that, have, that have really uh, dampered progress that could be made. Do you think there are any clear steps? You've identified shifting education in law school, and I would argue uh, more broadly than that, um, education around how we talk to children mm -hmm. uh, from K through 12 around this. And we've seen some, you know, I think that one of the indications of how successful and meaningful that could be is some of the pushback we've already seen towards shifting uh, K through 12 education around issues of race and Dr. King. In fact, I saw an article in Time, I did not read it, but the title was How Teachers Are Talking About Dr. King Now, right, post anti-CRT. Uh, uh, efforts, right? And the, the implication was that there's had to be a shift uh, because the, some of that legislation doesn't permit us to talk uh, in the ways we were talking, which weren't even sufficient. Um, and so shifting education, are there any other clear steps that you see that you think will help to get us closer to Dr. King's vision of a 
I wrote it down, fully integrated, interdependent, loving community. That is his vision. He, he briefly describes being in an airport after the Montgomery march, and there is a delay. And he says thousands of people had come from all over the country, black, white, doctors, lawyers, teachers, labor organizers, stay-at-home moms. All these people had come from around the country, and they were stuck in this airport uh, because flights out of uh, Montgomery had been delayed. And he says, for a brief moment, you see people without regard to race caring for each other, uh, uh, feeding each other, talking to each other. And he says, I recognize, he's, he says in this book, I recognize this is a microcosm of the kind of world I want to create. And then the following sentence is, but this is the best of America. This is not all of America, right? And so um, if we get to a place where that microcosm is, is exponentially exists, outside in the world and all these various places, what do you think are the steps we need to take to get there? I think that it's a challenge to get there in a way that would actually be equitable because of the tremendous gaps in wealth between the majority white population and their black counterparts, as well as other people of color and indigenous people. So is that shift ready to happen <laughs> where people are willing to share their resources, share their wealth, share their knowledge, or even make amends for the wrongs of the past that allowed people to get their wealth um, on the backs of human beings, right, who were enslaved or who were degraded uh, or who were systematically being denied opportunity. I'm not sure that America is genuinely ready to have that conversation, right, and to do the things that would lead us to um, you know, Dr. King's perspective on what America could look like. I also think that if we are talking about a quote-unquote integrated society, that that's going to mean the adoption or reinforcement of what the culture looks like. And right now, we know that mainstream white middle-class culture seems to dominate a lot of the traditions, the customs, you know, the narratives, the perspectives of what happens in this country. And so what does that mean for everyone else? Does that mean that we have to completely assimilate in order to live in this version of society, that we can't bring our whole selves to the table? If you speak a different language, you can't bring that to the table because you're not going to be able to fit in and blend in. So those are things I think about, and it makes me understand very clearly why People have enclaves, cultural enclaves, in an attempt to preserve their sense of culture and identity because the rest of mainstream white America does not match that, does not line up with that. That's not the lens by which the media looks at those issues. And the media, we know, is a powerful and influential force that helps to shape the thinking of many people across this country. And sadly, Sometimes the critical thinking is not there because we're being spoon-fed how to think, how to act, what's important, et cetera. And we do that, I would say, to the detriment of those who really need access to opportunity um, and who really should have a seat at the table as opposed to being told, you don't belong at this table. You don't, this, this doesn't belong to you because you haven't worked hard enough to achieve it, right? So that's, so I push back a little bit against that notion. Um, I know that, you know, Dr. King felt that, 
articulated that for il illustrative purposes, but the realities of what is happening in our society makes it very difficult to have trust in that. You know, all we need to do is look at what happened in the aftermath of um, the Brown v. Board cases, right? What, what, who can say, give examples of what happened specifically with regard to black children, black teachers, black community after that litigation? I, you want to respond? Very much putting the, the blame on black people for not, not having the wealth, not having the, the, the tools to build themselves up. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of black teachers lost their jobs, you know, as well, just to piggyback off what you were saying. They lost their jobs. The integration didn't follow them into new job opportunities. Their schools were shut down. They lost jobs. That was wealth that they've never been able to recapture. Um, not just from an economic perspective, but the intellectual property, the knowledge of culture that they missed out on when the integration didn't follow them. You know, they, they weren't allowed to, to follow the wave of integration um, into these predominantly white schools, right? So again, the dominant culture reigned in that situation. And black people are still trying to pick up the pieces. Uh, from what happened. So I have a little bit of a different perspective. You know, I'm not just kind of like Pollyannish. We're all going to get along because of the truth of what happens in reality yeah. and in this society. No, I think you're exactly right. And, and even Dr. King says a big part of the problem is we're all operating from different definitions of, of what it means to make progress. And, you know, one of the starkest examples of that, I think you just alluded to, which is um, you know, what, what does integration actually mean? And unfortunately, uh, our society has largely defined integration uh, or diversity as mere proximity to difference, right? Just being close to someone who is different is progress, not substantive encounters of difference, right? Such that you had these black children going into these white spaces that had been premised on white supremacy since their inception, and those spaces were not meaningfully transformed mm -hmm. when those children were brought in. Those children were traumatized. I mean, they had to go through interviews process. There's a great documentary on PBS called um, The Fall of Mass Resistance. And it talks about the ways in which these children who, who did the integrating, they had to be interviewed. They were asked questions like, what are you going to do if you're spit on or called the N-word to ensure that these children would not react in ways that would disturb white comfort. And the children, are, which are now adults in the documentary, are talking about their experiences where they go to the water fountain and someone spits in it, or they're not allowed to go to social dances, or they didn't let the first person who graduated walk across the stage, or they would sit in a seat and all of the other children would move and the teacher wouldn't say anything, or they'd be talking about slavery and say, if you were a slave, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the ways in which these experiences were actually really traumatizing, even though the story that we get about them is that they're heralded as heroes and, you know, they did this great thing. They talk about how heavy this weight was because we defined integration as mere access and not as transforming the space in a way that was fundamental and allowed for the humanity of these people to be acknowledged in its fullness, right? And so I think you're right. In order for us to make the kind of progress that we think we've already made, it's going to require a paradigm shift, even psychologically, mm -hmm. um, as to what's required. Okay. And this, oh, just real no. quick, it's going to require white America to take responsibility 
right? Turner Commission. We're always taught to teach our kids. I have to talk to my 18-year-old son. I I feel like a helicopter mom because I'm like, where are you? Who are you with? Where are you going? Because I understand the danger, right, that he experiences when he leaves the house. And so I'm always, but I hardly ever do I get that sense that white parents are being asked to take responsibility for their children's education around racial justice and oppression and the role that white people have played historically in perpetuating that, as well as even talking about the wealth gaps and how that came to be. Has nothing to do with who's willing to work hard and who's not. And everything to do with this infrastructure that has been created for some to succeed and some to remain on the bottom from one generation to the next. So that conversation needs to happen, right? Where why wasn't the burden placed on the white adults who would be standing outside before school, during school, and after school to try to intimidate, harass, and physically assault black children who are trying to attend so-called integrated schools? We don't, we see the pictures, but do we have the conversation about what that means? What kind of, what happened at the dinner table that allowed white adults to sanction that kind of behavior and or participate in it and to send those messages to their children that they are superior, that black children are inferior and they don't belong in community with you, in schools with you, in pools with you, et cetera. Yeah. I think think that's exactly, you know, having a discussion about the construct of whiteness, what it was created for, how it's historically operated, what it means for us as a society to interrogate its impact and how it's informed the institutions that we revere, right? Even our laws. I think you're right. And I, and I mean, I think that, that is also a big part of why these, that mandate that you were talking about has been abandoned, right? Why Dr. King, no one's read Dr. King's, uh, uh, where do we go from here? That's not what we, that's not what's crystallized in our memory. The 1963 version of I Have a Dream is crystallized, right? Mm -hmm. Or even the Kerner Commission isn't a report that most people have read, Mm -hmm. in part because it makes some of those same requests in terms of what we need to do to move forward. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I know we needed time for a Q and A. I see Olivia back there with a microphone. Uh, So we have about 10 minutes-ish for questions. Yes. Thanks very much, all very inspiring and energizing. Um, The question I have, and it fits with things you talked about earlier and then kind of where you ended up too. One of the things, one of the ways I think um, uh, Dr. King's words have been misused in addition to the ways you've talked about is saying that he envisioned a colorblind society and that the, the colorblind aspect, now it feeds into what's going to the Supreme Court now. And various, And I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that piece. Well, I think that that's a fallacy, you know, and, and like you said, a misuse of Dr. King's words and his intentions. I don't think that he ever intended for us to become a so-called melting pot, right? That was a term that I learned as a child that was seen as positive for us to all become a melting pot where, you know, your differences don't matter. We'll just all blend in together. But I remember at one point hearing Jane Elliott um, talk about we're, we're not a melting pot. We're supposed to be more like a salad where every component is different and matters and serves its purpose. So that's how I, you know, tend to look at it. I think that that's more of what Dr. King had in mind. 
Um, he knew, of course, that there were many differences amongst people in society. But I think what he was getting at is respect for those differences um, and a willingness to help level the playing field so that everyone has equal access to opportunity. Does that answer your question? The moment I hear someone say colorblind, I'm like, oh, this is someone who hasn't read his work, right? That's the clearest indication to me that this is someone who actually has never read King. Um, and is just using a, a very regurgitated, watered down, um, mis I think a, mis I don't, a distortion, right? Like you're taking this one line um, that's out of context and that's completely divorced from the rest of his work. Um, I mean, this is his 1967 book, That Speech Happens in 1963. The book is laden with race uh, consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, um, which certainly repudiates any notion that he believed moving forward required us not to see those differences. Anyone else? No? We answered all the questions. Yes. So quick tangent, then my question, I promise. So your your story about your five-year-old daughter really rang true for me because in school I watched a, a documentary called My Friend Martin. I don't know if anyone in this room is familiar, but it's essentially premised upon a white child goes back and saves Dr. King from assassination and then wakes up back in today's world, came out in 99, so... Uh, and his best friend, who is Latina, is cleaning his school's floors and doesn't speak English and just kind of this whole mess of white saviorism. I'm not getting into that. How, what lessons do you see, like, forming from the way that we treat Dr. King's assassination in the way that we are currently treating the primarily men who have been killed by police? Do you see parallels there? And kind of where do you see those? And maybe what... Um, cautions we should take while speaking about those people in connection to the way that we speak about Dr. King. Thank you for sharing that story. I think a lot of folks can resonate because most of our understanding of what actually happened is incomplete, mm -hmm. right? Which is by design mm -hmm. because how are textbooks still being designed 2022 now going into 2023 with the same messaging unless it is intentional. Um, so I, I do see parallels in terms of what Dr. King said, his ultimate assassination, and what we see happening in society today with regard to uh, killings at the, hand of, at the hands of police. I think that one of the things we have to do is resolve to become truth tellers. That's one of the most difficult things for people to do. It's not just, you know bringing forward an oral argument, right, that's well-polished, you know, all the laws, the statutes, everything. We may consider that a form of truth-telling. It's really persuasion, right, at the end of the day and hoping a judge or a decision-maker sides with you. But being a truth-teller equals a lot of vulnerability because as you bring forward ideas that are in alignment with your version or understanding of the truth, there's going to be resistance, there's going to be pushback, it's going to be difficult for people to accept what you have to say. And all we have to do is look at Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail as a very clear example. We see how eloquent Dr. King was in articulating the struggles of the day, um, his concerns about white moderates and you know, folks who are saying, we're with you, but you need to slow down. You need to wait. The passage of time will change things. 
But we also need to look at why he needed to write that letter from a Birmingham jail. It was because of the eight white clergymen who wrote him a letter telling him that he was doing too much, that he wasn't in alignment with the gospel. He's basically riling up the Negroes. And they also mentioned black ministers who agreed with them, right, who gave them that ammunition to try to bring down a black leader who was also a truth teller. So I think most people don't want to pay the price because there is a price to speaking truth unapologetically and knowing that people are going to get uncomfortable. A lot of times, even when I go speak, I forgot to do it today, but I remind people, hey, guys, I'm not Minnesota nice. Just, you know, you guys can laugh. Like, you can lighten up a little bit. But, you know, I, re I say that on purpose because people are used to even sanitized conversations around race and around these issues, um, even more so than how we've sanitized Dr. King. So I think truth-telling is in short supply. Um, and we need to see a shift in that. We need to see courage, which I think was one of their secret weapons during that period of time, unmatched courage, um, and their faith, right? So that's one of the things. The other thing that I think specifically for law students and those who are going to become lawyers is to understand that if you are going to work for an institution um, or a company, that a lot of times they haven't necessarily critically examined any of these issues. And so the policies that are in place, the practices, the unwritten rules are often premised upon some of these notions of white supremacy. It's not necessarily, you're not going to see that blatantly in the policies, but if you ask black employees or other employees of color what's happening there, you hear the stories from people, then you realize some of the practices that are happening that um, are perpetuating discrimination. And it's not about who's a good person and a bad person. Because a lot of times, at least what I've seen, when we're bringing up issues of concern, and it may be attached to a person in leadership or who has responsibility, people get upset. And they're like, well, well she's a good person. He's a good person. That has nothing to do with the outcomes and the effects of the behavior, the decision-making, the policies, and the enforcement of those policies. So not only do we have to be truth-tellers, we have to be willing to have an open mind that what we know, what we learned, what we thought we knew might not actually be the truth, might not actually be reality. And that is a wake-up call for a lot of people, and some people go right back to sleep. <laughs> and others decide, I'm going to devote my life to trying to change things to the best of my ability. Anybody you have time? Um, we got about five minutes. Take a question. Students are welcome. Okay. Yeah. 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 This would be the last Thank one. Thank you so much for this. I am from Cartagena, Colombia. I am an activist there. It's political brutality. Mm -hmm. And I have realized here, like, that people, when they see black people, when they see black people, black women protesting or taking the streets, white people or mestizo people, Latin American mestizo people, said, like, uh, you have to be peaceful, you have to act in a peaceful way, you don't have to be angry, you have to start the dialogue. So I want you to give us a message for all people who are here in this auditorium about the importance of taking the streets and mobilizing our anger, and also to rethink the word peace, because what 
white people think about peace, maybe it's not the same thing that we think about peace when our brothers have been killed by the police, for example. Just a message for us as a youth who wants to change this in an unstructural way. Thank you for that question. Dr. King actually addresses that, you know, in some of his writings and his quotes where he talks about people wanting peace to be like the absence of tension. Yes. Yeah. Hmm? Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. I'm, I'm ad oh, This is me ad-libbing in the background. You're not supposed no, to actually good. turn no. to me and say, what were you saying? No, you, you, no. you have that energy, so say, seriously. No, no I mean, peace. Can, there's, there's no peace without justice. You know, a lot of times we think peace is like love, love, hug, hug, you know, and and not justice, right? Peace mm -hmm. is the presence of justice. There can be no, there can be no just, there can be no peace without without that that component, right? And so, yeah, I think I think unfortunately, you know, King's message of love and of nonviolence is often equated with niceness, right? right? Or you know, like you said, the absence of tension, right? The absence of conflict. Right. And no disruption. Yeah. And, and King himself said, no, no, no. I'm absolutely, I'm doing this for conflict. I'm doing this to disrupt. It is civil disobedience for that purpose. That is the point. Um, and love ha requires justice. Love absolutely. absolutely necessitates justice. And so without that aspect, you know, asking people to be peaceful without that component of justice, you know, is just really not only an affront to King's work, but impossible. Right. I mean, literally, peace necessitates justice. So, yeah, I think that that's, yeah. And right now we have, just to your point, there is a false sense of peace. I think that as long as the majority feel comfortable, you know, living their lives, going to work, going to school, bringing home a nice paycheck, being able to buy a nice home, and, you know, all the things that people say are important to, you know, living the American dream, right? As long as people are focused on that, they think that that's peace. There is a certain amount of ignorance that is attached to that way of thinking and doing and being because it negates the reality of what people are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis when they don't have peace, when their communities are being exploited, when they can't walk down the street without being worried about being harassed or being pulled over and being physically assaulted or even killed. There's no peace in that. I don't have peace when my 18-year-old leaves the house as a mom because I'm thinking about all the things, right, and the calls that I get as a civil rights lawyer from other parents whose child has left the house and have not returned home, right, for all the reasons that we're talking about. I also grew up in South Central LA, and I moved there in the early 1980s. So you can imagine... Um, with Rodney King, I was away at boarding school um, during that time of the uprising happening. But I understood in my community, there was no peace before Rodney King was brutally beaten by the LAPD, right? People didn't have access to basic resources. There, it felt like an intrusion in the community when they had to deal with uh, police cycling in and out, especially as the laws changed that made it easier to raid poor people's homes take people to jails and prisons, and, and sometimes for 20, 30, 40 years, we're still in the era of mass incarceration that started to proliferate even more after Dr. King's assassination. And many folks aren't even having those conversations, right? So I, so I want you all, as you are sitting here and taking this in, and as some of you have had to resist the urge to get offended, 
by some of the things that we were talking about. I want you guys to just meditate on what you've heard and compare that to, to what you've been taught, right? And how you've been taught to think. And you see that there's not really alignment between the two. So how do you get towards a place of alignment? One part, one pathway towards getting to alignment is this sense of acknowledgement that things are not okay. It's not saying you still can't enjoy your life, but it's knowing, okay, there's still work that needs to be done. So what's my responsibility when I can do pro bono hours? What am I going to do to give back in a meaningful way and urge others to do the same? When I'm able to, let's say, amass you know, a small fortune or you know, whatever you, know, you guys decide to do economically, what are you going to do with those resources that are in alignment with this new understanding of the truth, right? And then how are you going to talk to those you love, your family, your children, about these issues and not go along with the status quo and business as usual if you know that it is not in alignment with the truth? So I think that's our charge, right, going into 2023. And it is a heavy lift. It is not for the faint of heart, but it's absolutely necessary if we want to get to that mountaintop that Dr. King talked about and see a more equitable, more fair, more honest version of our society. Please join me in thanking Akima Lee Armstrong. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.